right. All right. Hey, everybody. Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Man, I am so, I am so thankful to see all the, the new faces out there. So if this is your first time here, uh, if you're out there online, wherever you are in the world watching us for the first time, welcome. Um, it matters that you're here. We are, we are a community church. We're a small church, and it matters, each one of you. So uh, Pastor Gabe said, you know, after service, if you have any questions, hang around and, and talk. We mean it. I will be here walking around. She'll be here walking around. And we want to connect with you. We want you to make sure that, that we know that it matters that you're here. Um, I want to do a little housekeeping first. Since uh, right after the first of the year, we tend to see an increase in people coming in. Um, my prayer, my hope is that it lasts for the rest of the year. But I want to tell you a little bit about who we are as a church without going very in-depth. Um, we teach a little bit differently than some churches. It's not radical. Some churches teach this way. Many churches do. But we do what's called expository teaching. And what that really means is that we let the Word of God speak for itself. We go in, we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we look at the Word of God and we interpret that. My job is to interpret that correctly and then relay that, what it says. So whereas um, sometimes churches will have a theme and they'll teach about a theme and pull scriptures from all over the Word of God to support that theme, we will just go into a particular book and we will search it through. So your timing is wonderful today because we are kicking off our study in the book of James. Woo, it's called, it's, and Kayla was the one that picked it. No. Kay, Kayla and the Holy Spirit picked it for us. Um, but uh, the, uh, the book of James, sometimes called the epistle of James, and, and an epistle just means letter. So if you want to sound smart, say, I was reading the epistle of James, and so that'll make you sound smart at your next gathering, or weird, one of the two. Um, but um, it's such an important book. I, I think it's such an important book. We just got done, other than the Christmas season where we taught the good and perfect gifts, um, we, we spent almost a year teaching through uh, the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And, and it was so, I think there was so much in there to, to pull out and talk about. James is much, much more concise it's much more compact. Um, but before we even get into it, I want to ask a question. Is there anybody here, and I mean this in the best possible way, but think about it for a second. Is there anyone here who knows someone who professes to be a Christian but doesn't always live like one? Don't look at the person next to you. Eyes forward. Eyes forward. Does anybody know someone like that? Does anybody know someone who, if they didn't tell you they were a Christian, you wouldn't know it? Or maybe you find out some way or another and you're surprised because their actions and the things they do and say and the way they live their life doesn't always add up. Now, I say this in the most loving way. Is it you? Sometimes, sometimes is a good answer. So, if any of those things apply to you, then I think you should study the book of James. Because James is, it's very often quoted. There's probably, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, 
you've probably heard the book of James quoted at one time or another or taught from individual pieces. Um, it's a, it's a goldmine of wisdom. There's so much great stuff in there. But it can be challenging. And there are a couple challenges in there that we're going to talk about. Um, and I want you to understand the challenges so that we can get our minds around it before we go on. That's what today is. Today we're introducing what this book is all about and how we're going to be digging into it and where we're going to go. So, again, like I said, it's often quoted. It's only five chapters. It's only five chapters, 108 verses in total. Now, for those of you who've been with us through uh, Job and Mark and all those that we did, you're like, we'll be done today, right? (coughs) No. (laughs) 108 verses, but it contains over 60 specific challenges of how to live a Christian life. And that's only one reason why it can be a challenging book. There are a couple other things that we're talk, we'll talk about more in a minute. James is an intensely practical book. It is so practical, filled with exhortations to Christians about the way that they should live their lives now that they've been given a new life in Christ. Anybody ever buy a, a new car or a new home or, or anything like that, and, and what you say is, I'm not going to let this one fall apart like my last one did. I know I spent a huge chunk of my life letting my life fall apart, letting it just deteriorate. And then when I was given new life in Christ, the first thing I wanted to do is, this life is going to be different. This life I'm going to take care of. This life is going to matter. And I hope that some of us are in that place. Now, James, James doesn't talk an awful lot about the messiahship of Jesus. He doesn't talk an awful lot about specific kingdom kind of topics and other theological topics. He doesn't talk a lot about the crucifixion on the cross. doesn't talk about a lot of those subjects. But what he does talk about in great detail is what the expression of that new life in Christ should look like in the life of a Christian. And in fact, he goes a little bit further than that, almost to the point of questioning whether a faith that does not produce real life change is worthless. If that faith, if that new life you've been given does not produce a real, visible, tangible change in your life, he goes as far as to question, is it worthless? That can sound like a harsh statement. What it is is an exhortation to the people of God to do what they were called to do. That's what we're getting into. So contained in this letter are scriptures that we've all heard taught so much one time. Before I get to that, before I get to that, the Holy Spirit spoke something to me earlier, and I was just like... Is this for now? Because this doesn't really fit, but it does fit. It's just a scripture, Galatians 6, 9. As we're coming out of two years plus of life being upside down, right? Anybody's life perfectly normal, exactly like it was two years ago? Nobody. Nobody. And we're all struggling with that. 
And there's been a certain amount of just like, I'm just tired. I'm just tired of dealing with this or that or shortages or this or politics or whatever it is. I'm just tired of it. In Galatians 6, 9, Paul says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. I feel like this is a year of reaping the harvest that we have all struggled so hard to plant. This is our new building. We've been in here six months now. It still feels brand new to me. But this is a blessing from God, and I feel like all the work that it took to get from the other building to here and and all the issues that happened in between and all of our individual lives, all the issues we've been dealing with, that has been a struggle, but it's been been planting. It's been sowing. It's been setting aside for, for what's to come. And this year, I just feel like this year we get to reap. And so this is going to help us do that. Reaping means making a difference, not in your life only, but in everyone's life that you come in contact with. This is what James is going to help us with. So I hope you're on board with that because here we go. Contained in this letter are scriptures that we have all heard taught at one time or another, such as. Now this is going to be, for those of you who take notes, don't worry about taking down all these notes. We're going to go back and study each one of these individually. And this isn't all of them. What I did is I just picked out, I don't know, there's a dozen or so scriptures that we've all heard. And maybe you're like, oh, I knew that was from James. And maybe you didn't. But I want to build some excitement. So I'm like, I want to hear that taught a little bit more in depth. Listen to this. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Anybody ever heard that taught before? That's from James. James 1.5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. James 1.12. Blessed, I'm told you, this is going to be just a shotgun, one after another. James 1.12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. James 1, 16, 17. Do not, be de- be- Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James 1, 19. You know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Now everyone must be quick to hear slow to speak, and slow to anger. James 1.22, prove yourself doers of the word and not just hearers who deceive themselves. That is the founding scripture for this church. James 1.26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Chapter 2 now, verse 13. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. (coughs) Chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead so also faith without works is dead. 
that's when a lot of us struggle with that concept. We're going to talk more in depth about that. Chapter 3, verse 10. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. James 3.16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Homestretch here. James 4.6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Most of us have heard this one. James 4.7, submit therefore to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Verse, verse uh, 17, chapter 4. So for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. Chapter 5 now, James 5, 9. Do not complain, brothers and sisters, against one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. James five twelve. But, be, but above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, so that you do not fall under judgment. James 5.13, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, there's only two more. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. And then James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, can accomplish much. That's some awesome stuff. And that's only just the, that's just the highlights. There's so much more in there, and it's such practical teaching. In fact, um, James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. There's a reason for that too, but we're going to go into this now. The question though that you may be asking yourself, or maybe you're not, so I'll ask it for you, is why is James considered so difficult to study with so much practical wisdom and all those things? It doesn't seem like it's going to be that hard to study. The reason is, is the the contrast between works. Faith without works is dead. That's what James says. Paul says works don't mean that much. It's all about faith. So we have this thing where Paul is teaching extensively in almost all of his letters, almost all of his epistles, that, that faith is all you need. Faith is the key for everything. Faith unlocks all the doors in your life. And then here we have James going, faith without works is dead. Okay, so who's, who's right and who's wrong? Is one right and one wrong? Can both of them be right? A lot of people think, in fact, a lot of scholars who study this, think that this epistle, this letter from James was written in response to an over, overzealous interpretation of Paul's teaching about faith, and about the, the freedom in faith. Anybody ever know somebody who reads something and maybe takes it to the extreme? Scripture is all about that. Biblical history is all about that. I read something, and therefore, that's my entire theology now, especially if it lines up with what you want to do. 
Martin Luther, in fact, one of the, one of the early, um, early fathers, early theologians in the church called James, he called it an epistle of straw. He hated it. In fact, I'll be honest. Martin Luther, good at a lot of stuff, but he hated the book of James. The reason is he could not wrap his mind around this difference between what Paul was teaching and what James was teaching. Smart man, brilliant man, spirit-led. But he struggled with that. And the problem, again, this apparent contradiction to what Paul taught on justification by faith and not by works. Let me share a couple scriptures with you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is Paul writing this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In Galatians, he writes, Galatians 2.16, Therefore, or nevertheless, that is, knowing that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may just be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by, no, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. How many times in that, in that one verse did the phrase works of the law get repeated? Three times. Good, paying attention. Galatians 2.16, repeats the phrase works of the law three times. And what I want to point out is that works of the law versus works of the heart are two entirely different things. That's why we're calling our series Works of the Heart, because James is all about works of the heart. The heart in Scripture is so important. Here's, in fact, what just a small snapshot of what Scripture says about the importance of the heart. Hebrews 4.12. I think we have that one up here. Yep. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as a division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17, verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind to give each person according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. That sounds to me like God himself, because it says, I, the Lord, is saying that it matters what you do with your faith. It matters what you do with who you are and that your reward will be according to that. James then in, in what we'll see in the coming weeks, he writes extensively about the tongue and the dangers. And I don't mean the, specific, the literal tongue, but the things you say, the things that come out of your mouth. He writes extensively about that. And Luke says this about the tongue. Luke six forty five: the good person out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. So it matters. We're going to see what James says about all this as we study it. Now, I just want to say this right out, and I wrote it in red and highlighted it. Um, James' epistle does not contradict the teachings of Paul. Does not contradict, contradict them. But in fact, it perfectly complements 
Paul's writings perfectly. Salvation is given by faith in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other way. You can't work yourself into salvation. But it's demonstrated by faithfulness and obedience to God and his commands. And that creates an outpouring of what we do with it. So, with that in mind, okay, who is James and why do so many people think that he has a problem with Paul? Let's talk about that because if we're going to study James for the next few months, however long it takes us, we should know who James is, which also is somewhat of a, of a subject of debate. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Okay, and I say half-brother because who's Jesus' father? Okay. So, half-brother. He's also the brother of Jude, Joseph, and Simon, and a number of unnamed sisters, at least three. Okay, so Jesus came from a big family, at least seven, at least seven that we know of. <clears throat> and here's an image of James and Jesus right here. As children, not an actual photo. But this is a famous painting. It's James, it's James and Jesus. Sometimes, though, um, the writer of this epistle is credited to be James, the son of Zebedee, who was one of the apostles. Remember the sons of thunder? Okay, he was one of the sons of thunder. So some people believe that it is the son of Zebedee. So if you're the kind of person that wants to go in, like, I want to study this for myself, and you start studying those things, you're going to find two separate dates given for the, the martyrdom of James, the epistle writer. You're going to find two separate stories about who he is and the things that he did. It's important to study it for yourself. For those of you who don't want to, I've done it for you. Um, but study it for yourself and be aware of which James they're talking about. Mark 6.3, which we just got done studying in Mark, says, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon? And are all his sisters not here with us? And they took offense at him. Leave that up there for just a second. Now, uh, Joseph, that's actually what they would have called Joseph, but in parentheses there, it's Joseph. Judas, also known as Jude, Jude also has his own epistle in Scripture. So it's not uncommon. Some people would argue like, like, look, James didn't have the education to write a letter like this. James was just son of a carpenter, just like Jesus was. He didn't have this kind of, of education, but there is no question or no discussion about whether it was Jude that wrote the epistle of Jude, and he would have had the same upbringing, same education. Chances are they had a scribe who dictated those things for them, um, but that's, that's who it was. So... If we establish that, and there's going to be more on that later, so don't think like that's the end of that discussion. We'll talk about that more in coming weeks. But James, at first, did not accept that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, it took him quite a while to do that. John 7, 5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. So question, who here has 
a sibling that if someone told you your sibling is the Messiah, you'd go, oh yeah, I see it. Totally, <laughs> totally. Anyone? Probably not, right? Probably not, no matter how convincing the person telling you was. So what convinced finally James that his brother Jesus was the Messiah? What would it, what would it take for you to have, if you were told by a number of people that your sibling was the Messiah, what would it take for you to finally go, all right, not only do I see it, but yeah, I am on board big time. It would take a bit. First, in James' case, here's what it took. First, he personally witnessed the resurrected Christ. And we know that because Scripture tells us. Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians 15 6 and 7 says, after that, he's talking about after Christ has been resurrected. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, meaning they've died by now. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. That tells us two things, that he appeared specifically to James and that James was not one of the apostles. Not at that time. So he saw Jesus, saw the resurrected Christ. Now, here's another reason that you put these together. James had a nickname. James' nickname was James the Just. Anybody have a cool nickname like that? I don't. James the Just. And it was because, according to historians, he was extremely devoted to righteousness, extremely devoted to following Mosaic law, okay? Remember, he was a Jew, and he knew extensively about Mosaic law, and he was devoted to making sure it was interpreted right and that he lived his life like that. He was very, very devoted to that. The historian Eusebius, in fact, an independent historian, documents that he, that he followed mosaic, so, mosaic law, that is, so well. Now, if you were the kind of guy who was so devoted to Scripture and, and mosaic law that they nicknamed you James the Just, and you had a brother that everybody was saying he was the Messiah, and yet you knew that that brother used to steal loaves of bread from the market, and he used to sneak out of, the, out of the house at night and do things he wasn't supposed to. And he used language that he probably shouldn't. If you knew that your sibling was like that, how hard would it be for you to overcome everything that you knew about them and say, okay, I believe? It would be pretty impossible. Isaiah 53, 9, one of the scriptures that James would have known says his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. James would have known that and would have had to know that Jesus would have had to fit into that mold. He would have had to fulfill those. He couldn't, he couldn't just say, well, I remember that he went through that period where he was bad, and then he got better. James grew up with Jesus, and he would have had a front row seat to the entire life of Jesus, and he knew. 
So you put that together, a sinless life, as sinless as any human being could ever live his life, without witnessing the resurrection, wouldn't have, wouldn't have swayed James. It wouldn't have swayed me. I would have just gone, oh, my brother's a goody two-shoes. He's always, he's always right. And witnessing the resurrection of a brother who had lived a sinful life wouldn't have done it either. There were other people in Scripture that were resurrected, and nobody walked around saying he's the Messiah because he was resurrected. Those two things together, both of those facts were powerful enough to convert James. James did not convert. James did not begin believing that Jesus was the Messiah until after the death, or the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't until later. But after witnessing the resurrection, James believed so strongly that he eventually became the leader of the Jerusalem church. The very church that we see just growing and exploding in growth after everything that happened in Acts. Now, we know that from Acts again. Scripture tells us this. Acts 21, 17, 18. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us gladly, and the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Paul, the one who wrote the majority of the New Testament, Paul's kind of a big deal, right? And here we see Paul going in to visit James in the church, going in to see him. The result of that is when Paul was actually sent out on his missions. It was James and the Jerusalem church that sent Paul out. So they were very familiar with one another. Scripture calls James a pillar of the church, along with Peter and John. We see that in Scripture. And also, again, he sent Paul out on his missions. Here's the Scripture where this happens. Galatians 2, 9, 10. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, Cephas is Peter, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. So this is, this is James as leader of the Jerusalem church actually sending Paul out on his missions. James was also, he was finally martyred in 62 AD. This is one of those things where make sure you're looking at the right James when you see how he was martyred. The problem is the Jerusalem church had become too powerful. It had grown in in numbers. It was multiple thousands of people. And it had grown so um, influential in that day that Rome actually gave permission to the high priest at that time Yeah, do whatever you want. Just blow that up. Just get rid of that problem. So they actually do that. The high priest, Ananias, Ananias, um, actually has James stoned to death. Here's a painting. It's just a famous painting of James being led out to be stoned. I like to put pictures like that up there just to give those visual Learners, just kind of a little, a little picture in your head to go with. Now, here's what happened when James wrote this epistle. Um, <clears throat> he wrote this to Jewish believers. So Jews who had converted 
to Christianity were part, in most of them probably part of the Jerusalem church, who had been scattered. They had been scattered because of all this persecution that was going on. And they said, it's just too dangerous to be here in Jerusalem. We're going we're gonna to go to our homes. We're going to go to the countryside, wherever we're going to go. And they scattered. So he writes this to the Jewish Christians who had been scattered. A fancy biblical word, they call that the diaspora. If you've been scattered and you all have a like mind, but you're in all these various places, that's what that word means. But he wrote this epistle to them, and he wrote it um, either as a result of, remember Stephen was stoned. That happened in 31 AD, so that was early, early. But most likely it was Herod in 44 44 AD, who really started just directly attacking the church. Arrested Peter. If you know the story where Peter was arrested and put in jail and the angel appears to him and breaks him out, that all happened there. Read Acts 12 if you want a little bit more background on that. But that's who James is writing this letter to. These people, they're already believers. They already have the Spirit. They already know about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus They know all that. They are converts, but they've been scattered. And now they need to know, what do I do with this faith? I don't don't have my church to go to anymore. What do I do with this faith? And he writes this letter. And now he actually writes this just so that you know, this is probably the very first of all of Scripture that was written to, well, New Testament Scripture. Old Testament was longer, but New Testament scripture is the first one that was written down, dated somewhere between 44 and 49 AD. It's the earliest written book. But he wrote it from a Jewish perspective to a Jewish perspective, and meaning he uses a lot of Old Testament references, things that they would understand, um, and he talks a lot about the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, what he basically does, what a lot of people say, is that he takes Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and says, okay, you've heard the words, here's how you do it. Talk about practical. The greatest sermon ever given, except for maybe that one that I did in Mark, but that one, (laughs) no, not even close. Far and away, the greatest sermon ever given, the Sermon on the Mount And here we have James saying, here's how you live it. Ah, That should be exciting to learn what James has to say. But these guys were so ingrained in Mosaic law and this system of of works, meaning you have to do this in order to be righteous. The Jews were all about works and introducing this idea that it wasn't, your salvation had nothing to do with works. That was radical and so James spent a lot of time explaining this idea that that works of the law is not what's going to save you. Works of the law is not what's going to justify you. And if you're not listening carefully, it's easy to confuse works of the heart and works of the law. This is what we're going to have to tread as we go through this teaching, making sure that we're very, very clear. Works of the heart. And so more than any other book in the entire New Testament, James puts this spotlight on the necessity for believers to act like believers, for believers to act in accordance with this new life 
they've been given, to act in accordance with this faith. And he emphasizes this idea that good actions are naturally going to flow from those who are filled with the Spirit. If you are filled with the Spirit, you have been given gifts, and you also then begin growing in the fruits of the Spirit. And they may not all manifest at once, but we should be growing in those. And if they're not manifesting in your life, there may be something wrong. And again, James questions whether someone may or may not even have a saving faith if the fruits of the Spirit can't be seen. So the question, this is the end of the message. I want you to think about this as we pray. How well do your actions, how well does your life mirror the faith in Jesus Christ that you proclaim? Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that you speak to each one of us, that you touch our hearts and let us know, are there ways that we don't glorify you in our lives? Ways that our lives don't reflect our thankfulness and our joy for being saved by your work on the cross? Are there places where we think that the things we do, our works, are what is going to save us? And we're simply focused on doing for the, for the sake of doing. Show us those places, God. And we want to replace those with works that flow from our heart. We want to do things for you. We want to, to do things empowered by the Spirit for our world, for our community, for our family. But not because we have to. But because our heart is so overflowing that we want to. So, Father, help us to see where we are. Help us to make changes if we need to make changes. And help us to understand that you did the important work. And now we just live that life as a reflection of you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, guys, we're going to take communion now. Um, we take communion every week. And if you're, if you're new here new to this church, let me explain it really quick. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have to be a member. You don't have to do anything special. You just have to say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I want to celebrate that by taking communion with this body. That's how we do it here. Now, we have two ways. We'll have two stations. We'll have one over in this corner, one over in this corner. Usually, the best way is to come to the middle and come down and, and out like that and then back to your seats. Up front here, we have wine, and we have bread, and we have small gluten-free crackers if you want that. And what we do is we just take it and dip it in the wine and take communion that way. In the back, if you either don't want wine, if you'd rather have juice, we have that at a self-serve station in the back, as well as the little self-serve cups. Um, we take communion because we're thankful for what Christ did. Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. So we don't just remember like, hey, that was cool what Jesus did that one day. Every time we take communion, we're saying yes to what Jesus taught. We're saying, I understand what he taught. I know what he taught. I know my place in what he taught. And I know my purpose. And so when I take communion, I'm saying yes. I align with that. 
and I will live my life as to the best that I can. In my human ability, I will live the best life that I can to reflect who Jesus is and his righteousness in me. So that's what we do. The worship team is going to begin to play on. So as soon as you're ready, if you want to sit in your seats and just pray for a little bit more, you can. If you want to move about and start taking communion right away, you can. The worship team will do a couple more songs. And let's just enjoy who the Lord is among us today. Amen? Thank you, guys.